How's everyone doing? How's your week been? How are we doing? Good? Can y'all hear me? What? I didn't hear him. What? Went to Alabama. Congratulations, you went to Alabama. Okay, um, we're going to get started. As you can see, the topic we're going to be dealing with tonight is what is the church? What is the church? What do you think? What is the church? Say that again. People. Is that right? Go to the next slide. Nope. Yep. There you go. Is that a church? Yes. Is that a church? Raise your hands if you think, yes, that is a church. Go ahead. No, that, that's, that's, that's something. What is that? Is that a church? Yes or no? Huh? That's a building. That's what we're looking for. That is a building. The church is an organic thing. It is the people. Casey was right. But we look, and most of us would say, if we walked up on this building, we would say, that's a church. And we would likely be right. That's a church building. But the church is the people of God. Drew talked with us a few weeks back about what it is to be a Christian. You remember? I see that hand. We can't look at Christians and tell if they're believers or not. We can only see their works and take their testimony. Well, the church uh, is that corporate body of believers that proclaim the, proclaim the name of Christ and gather together, that is the church. Go to the next one. This is the text we're going to be kind of looking at um, to describe what the church is. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In this text, you see um, what the church is. This is the Apostle Peter addressing the church of the first century. And he starts out by just naming a few things of what, as the church, we are. A, royal, a chosen race, a, ro holy a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. A people... For his own possession. Whose possession? Who? Yes. Jesus. He redeemed this. Okay. So just kind of how I hope to help you kind of understand this. The Old Testament, the way our Old Testament, uh, our Bible is laid out, there is a, a, a rhyme and a reason of the way the books are structured. Well, that holds true for the New Testament as well. The New Testament um, is composed of three different kind of types of literature. You've got the three, uh, four Gospels, the historical book of Acts, and then the rest are epistles. The Gospels talk about the life and ministry of God incarnate, the second person of the triune Godhead, 
entering into time and space, into his creation, and taking on human flesh. And it covers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John covers that time frame. Acts begins from Christ's ascension and the first few decades of the early church, and it gives kind of the history and the progression, mainly from uh, the Apostle Paul and his missionary journeys um, throughout the known world at that time. And then the epistles are written to churches. They're written to specific churches, specific people in churches. Uh, you've got... Um, you know, uh, you've got Romans and Corinthians, and all of those are written to specific churches and for all of the churches of that day and for us as well. Timothy and Titus, written to a specific person, which happened to be um, the early, uh, a couple of early elders and pastors in the early church, directly to them, but for all of the church and for us today. And then the epistles. And they're all written to the church for a purpose. They're written to give instruction, to teach doctrine, for encouragement. Because one of the things that you have to remember is the early church endured a great persecution in the first century. Especially the first half a little more in the first half of the first century, they endured quite a, uh, uh, quite a bit of persecution from the Romans' uh, control of the known world of that day. They, un they endured a lot of persecution. So we get this, and this is, all of it is written to them. Make no mistake about it. It is written to them. Yet it is for us today too as well. We, we, get, we get our doctrine from it. We still get encouragement from it and we get instruction from it, just like they did. But it was written to them. And that's important, as we'll see next week, because next week we're going to talk about the relationship of Israel as a nation and the church. Is there continuity? Is there differences? We're going to talk about that. Um, so, just a definition of the church. The church is the community of all true believers, past, present, and future that have been redeemed by Jesus. Now the key to that is past, and we'll, we'll explore that a little bit again next week. Uh, we're going to look up a lot of scriptures, so if you've got a Bible, y'all need Bibles. Have y'all not got Bibles? Go to the next slide. Uh, somebody get John 17, 1 through 5 for me. 17, 9, Logan. 17, 20 through 21, Anthony. John 17, 20 through 21. Josiah's got 17, 1 through 5. Who wants first John? Huh? Go ahead. We're going to read a lot. We've got a lot of scripture to cover tonight. Everybody's going to get a chance. All right, whenever you're ready, go ahead, Josiah.
know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorify you on earth, I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before you were Okay. John 17. Um, go ahead. Who had that? Logan, go ahead. 17.9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but those for whom you have given me, for they are yours. Anthony. Okay. John 17. Anybody, what is, what is John 17? What is this particular passage? What is this known as? Anybody? What? Well, a bunch of the headers says Jesus prays for Yeah, this is considered Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is the prayer Jesus prayed in the Garden of, the, Garden of Gethsemane the night of his betrayal and arrest. He's praying for the people, again, in the first the passage of Josiah. Um, read, he is praying for those whom um, the Father has given the Son. The fact of the matter is the reality of what's happening here, and you see it very clearly in this particular passage, is there is a divine exchange between the Godhead that we are beneficiaries of. God give the Son a people to redeem. And he accomplished that redemption for the Father. And there's a divine exchange happening, and that's what we're seeing here. Um, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. This is a people for God's possession, and that's what's happening here, and that's who the church is. A community of all true believers, past, present, and future. And then the passage that uh, Anthony read is... Those that will believe. That's us. Jesus prayed for us. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he prayed for you in the garden the night of his betrayal and arrest. For those whom you will give me, those I pray for also. Go ahead, um, 1 John 5, 20, uh, Casey. Okay, so again, the definition of the church, we are, the church is a redeemed people from all time, from the beginning of time until the second return of Christ, until the end of, of, of time and history. There's expressions of this, we're called the invisible, invi the visible and invisible church. What do you think I mean by the visible church and the invisible church? The images of Christ? How about, how about the invisible church? Anybody? Go ahead, Aiden. 
Yeah, the the visible church is that. It's those that 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 say they are believers, those that claim to be followers of Christ, that gather together in buildings all around the globe. That's the visible expression of the church. The invisible expression of the church, because if you remember when Drew talked about salvation and what it is to be a Christian, can we know for 100% certainty who is and who is not a true Christian? We cannot. So it stands to reason then, if we can't, then can we know for sure what is a true church with 100% certainty? We cannot. We cannot. But the visible church, that is which God knows, that is those who have been redeemed by Christ that gather together from all time. That's what it's called in, why it's called the invisible church. It's something we cannot see. It's a reality that we cannot see. Um, so the reason that's important, we will get to uh, in the next section, but it's an important distinction if you hear somebody ever talk about the, the visible and invisible church. Because in, in, in where we are in Alabama, in kind of the heart of the Bible Belt, there are churches all around us. You can spin around and throw a rock and hit a church. Uh, they're, they're, they're within spitting distance most of the time. But are they true churches? But the visible church is very um, widely seen, especially in our area. So where does the English word church come from? Go to um, the next slide. We get the English, uh, English word church from the Greek word ecclesia. It's made up of the prefix ek, which means out of or from. And a form of the verb kaleo, which means to call. Thus, the definition of ecclesia means the called out ones, the church is the ones God has called out of the world. That's the Greek word that we get the word church from. We have been called out of the world and have been brought in by the blood of Christ into the kingdom of God. Who wants Romans 8, 9, uh, 29 and 30? Go ahead, Casey. Aiden, 9, 22 and 24. Romans 9, 22 and 24. Go ahead, Logan. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8. Okay, I'm gonna. Amelia. Ephesians 1 and 5. <laughs> uh, Ephesians 1 11, go ahead, um, Ava. When you get there, go ahead, whoever first. Who, 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 go ahead. For those who for me, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the first one among the green brothers. For those who he predestined, he also called those who he called, he also justified. Those who he justified, he also glorified. Okay. Do we see that word called out in that particular passage that he called? That's kind of, this is the passage that we kind of get the, uh, I know Josh has talked about it before, kind of the, the golden chain of salvation, the, the progression. So we see that um, for those whom he predestined, he also called. 9, 22 and 24.
Here's a tough passage, and this is a passage that is, um, it should, what is said in this small passage should bother a lot of people in that, and it, it rubs up against our kind of sinful sensibilities, even if we are Christians. What he has said in this passage is that the same God that is glorified in the ones whom he calls and redeems, he's also glorified in those that have not been. It says, what if God desiring to show his wrath and make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? That's a hard text. It should weigh heavy on us. If you are a believer, that, this is the kind of passage that should weigh heavy on you in that it should prompt you to be more mindful and intentional about the sharing of the gospel, um, which is the only way people are saved. They have to hear the gospel first. First uh, Corinthians 2, 6-8, through 8, who had that one? Ephesians 1.5, who had that? He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. Do y'all remember when we talked about predestination? When, when, when did this happen? When did the predestining occur? Go ahead, Andre. Before... That's right, before the universe was created. And uh, just a little bit down further, who had 111? Go ahead, Ava. Okay. We've obtained an inheritance. It's a big deal. Um, as born again, blood bought people of Christ, we have an inheritance. Predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Who is he? Who is he speaking of? Yeah, God. Okay, the next section, go ahead, next slide. We're going to look at We've talked about what the church is, where we get that, the, the, what the meaning and the definition of the, the English word, where we get the word church. Now the Bible talks about, uh, there's analogies that the Bible uses to describe the church. Can anybody um, think of an analogy that, and we've just kind of a hint, we've already read a few of them tonight, but some analogies that is used in Scripture to talk about and describe what the church is. Anybody? Brothers. As, as, brothers. as brothers? That's right. What kind of relationship would that be? Well, Familial. A family relationship, right? Yep. Church family? Yep. Now, there are, there are several. We're going to talk about, first, family. 
We've got family, body, new temple, holy priesthood, branches on a vine. We're described as an olive tree and a field of crops. We're going to take a look at a few of those. 2 Corinthians 11, 2. Go ahead, uh, Caleb. Ephesians 5, 25 through 32. That's a little lengthy. Who wants that one? Go ahead, Joe. 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. And 1 Timothy 5, 8. Go ahead, Josiah. 5, uh, 1 and 2. 8 and 5, 8. And whoever's got 2 Corinthians, when you get there, you can go ahead. Okay. Is that a familial relationship that he's talking about there? Betrothed you, the jealousy and it betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. That's a familial relationship. But who's the husband? Who's the husband here in this relationship? Specifically, Jesus. Jesus. He is the bridegroom, and we are the bride. Uh, Ephesians 5, 25 to 32. Joe. Husbands, love your wives. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water of the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, Okay, so we see that. I, I'm going to just tell you, um, students, um, this passage as a believer, I think the uh, men in this room that are married and have children, when you actually hear what this text says, it should weigh very heavily on you. Um, Christ, husbands are to love their Wives like what? Like Christ loved the church. Does Christ abandon his bride? No. What did he do for his bride? He gave himself up and died for her. That's how we are to love. So, let me give you a piece of advice. If you have not heard it from your parents before, you will not hear this from the world. If you seek, and you will, someone to eventually marry, men, this is who you're called to be. Ladies, this is who you're called to go after. That's, that's the standard. There's no compromise. That's the standard. Guys, that's, this is your call. If you intend to have children and you are a believer in Lord Jesus Christ, it's, it's not optional. There's no compromise. This is your call. And it's a beautiful thing. It's not easy, but it is a beautiful thing. It is a picture of the gospel. And this is what you should seat when you do. And again, he closes it out. 
talking about this mystery, but he's for, he says it refers to Christ in the church. So this is, again, that familial relationship and analogy used in Scripture to describe the church. 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Again, we talked about how, at the beginning that, that all of the New Testament is written for the church, to the church, then specifically, and for us today. And here's this clear familial instruction as if you are a church, encouragement. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger as men as brothers. So this familial relationship describes the church, and it also should mark how we treat one another. 1 Timothy 5, 8. What's an infidel? What is a, what's the ESV say? Unbeliever. So based on what he said a few verses above, this instruction he's given... That if you, as a believer, as a Christian, in the church, if you can't treat fellow believers in this way that he's outlined, you're worse than an unbeliever. So, again, that familiar relationship. Next, we're going to look at the body. Next slide. Who wants 1 Corinthians 12.12? 12? Logan? What's next? Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. Go ahead, Aiden. Um, Amelia, 4, 15, Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. You got your hand up. Kaylee, Colossians 2, 18 and 19. And whenever you get there, Logan. Okay, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. Okay, and Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Good. Colossians 2, 18 and 19. Okay. So y'all seeing those four different uh, places we went clearly describes the church as a body. Um, 
And, and again, none of this is exhaustive. This, there's many. We're only going to scratch the surface as far as that goes. But the Bible goes on to talk about, again, the, the passage that Kaylee just read, that the body being knit together. There is a unity in the body, and um, it, is, it functions best when all of the members of the body work for the same goal, toward the same um, goal. They work in unison. The body works best. Well, that analogy, again, is fitting for the church. A church is not a very healthy church if they're constantly infighting. If they're, if they're not working toward the same goal. What is our goal? What is our goal as a church? First and foremost, what is our goal? Go ahead. Yeah, that's talking about God, okay, but to who? Worship. Okay. What else? Anything? Glorifying. Glorifying. What is our mission? We'll talk about it later. But again... Our, our stated goal should be the same. And, and all of these are, those are not wrong. But we were commissioned for a purpose. And that purpose is to take the gospel to the nations. That is our purpose. That's why we've been left here. That's why we're here. That's just that simple. We're here to proclaim Christ to the nations. Take him to the nations. And profess him. Uh, the next one, we're going to look at New Temple. Who wants 1 Corinthians 3.9? Go ahead, Logan. Ephesians 2.19-22. Kaylee. Aiden, get Hebrews 3.1-6. Sorry. All right, uh, Logan, whenever you're ready, you're going. We'll Ephesians 2, 19-22. Okay. We're being built together to a temple of the Lord. It is, again, God is building, but we clearly see this um, analogy of new temple describing the church. And finally, Hebrews 3, um, 1 through 6.
Okay, here the author of Hebrews is, is kind of, the, the, we see the, the, the temple, the, the idea of house, a building, clearly defined here. But we see the contrast of Moses as the intercessor for old, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant nation of Israel. And he was faithful in God's house. Um, but Christ is faithful in God's house. Um, Moses was a faithful as a servant. Christ was faithful as a son. And we are his house. So, again, we will talk more about this, uh, this kind of idea um, next week when we talk about Israel as a nation and um, the church. But the author of Hebrews here is, you know, there's, there's a lot of imagery and talking about what Christ accomplished heavenly for us when he died. He enters the holy places, things not built with hands. That's the imagery that Hebrews has in mind in letting us know that did he die physically on a cross here in time and space? Yes, he did. But what actually happened, the transaction that occurred on our behalf was accomplished in eternity in heaven. And that's a big distinction. And again, we'll talk about it a little more next week. Uh, I need to hurry, don't I? All right, uh, Holy Priesthood, next slide. 1 Peter 2, 9. Go ahead. Revelation 1, 4 through 6. Go ahead, Aiden. And Revelation 5.10, go ahead, um, Amelia. Go ahead, whoever's got the first one. What'd you say? <laughs> huh? Yeah. Try it clearly this time. A royal priesthood. Good job. You butchered that word again on purpose. Okay. Nice. Revelation 1, 4, 6. And uh, Revelation 5.10. Okay, we see that again in those passages, the, this holy priesthood. 
this idea of priesthood. And again, we will talk about this idea again more in detail next week. Last, uh, next slide. The last three, who wants John 15, 5? Go ahead, uh, Jonathan. Olive tree, uh, Romans 11, 17 through 18. Logan. Josiah, get filled with crops, 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9. When you get there, Jonathan. Who is who is I? Who is speaking there? Jesus. That's good. Yep. Okay. So we see that I am the true vine. Uh, Romans eleven, seventeen through eighteen. This is another thing we'll talk about in a little more detail next week as well. Who does it, uh, but just kind of reading that, um, root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. A wild olive shoot, that's who he's speaking of. We're the, the church is the wild olive shoot. Grafted into what? What would we be grafted into? The branch, what is the branch though? Yeah, somewhat. The promises and the covenants, yes. But, and again, we'll talk about it in more detail next week, but then you've got the right idea. 1 Corinthians 3 5 through 9. Again, this Apostle Paul's talking about um, the Corinthian church here is disputing among who they want to follow. Who is Apollos? Who is Paul? They're fighting over, I, this is who I want to follow. This is who I was teaching I'm, I like. And, and, and Paul's saying, uh, we're just vessels. God actually gives the growth. Apollos um, watered. Paul planted and Paul was watered, but God gives the growth. So we're a field of crops. We are, again, you see the imagery of what we do as the church is blessed by God and God alone. We cannot do the things that only God can do. So when we spread the gospel, how do we know if someone is going to be saved or not? Here unto condemnation, or they go here unto salvation. That's the only thing we know for certain. The same gospel hardens and softens, and we don't know who, but we are to labor 
um, for God. Third thing we talk about is the marks of a true church. The reformers identified three marks of a true church. The first, does a true church profess the gospel? If a church denies any essential points of the gospel, such as the deity of Christ, the atonement, the triune nature of the Godhead, or justification by faith alone, it is no longer a true church. Speaking of this kind of idea, Charles Spurgeon... years ago. He says this, all, and all the converts that the church will ever make by softening down its doctrine and by becoming worldly will not be worth one bad farthing a gross. When we get them, the next question will be, how can we get rid of them? They would be of no earthly use to us. It swelled the numbers of Israelites when they came out of Egypt that a great number of the lower order of the Egyptians came out with them. Yes, but that mixed multitude became the plague of Israel in the wilderness. And we read that the mixed multitude felt a lusting. The Israelites were bad enough, but it was the mixed multitude that always led the, led the way in murmuring. Why is there such spiritual death today? Why is false doctrine so rampant in the churches? It is because we have ungodly people in the church and in the ministry. Eagerness for numbers and especially eagerness to include respectable people, as adulterated many churches and made them lax in doctrine and practice and fond of silly amusements. These are the people who despise a prayer meeting but rush to see living waxworks in their schoolrooms. God save us from converts who are made by lowering the standard and tarnishing the spiritual glory of the church. True converts are never daunted by, the tr by truth or holiness. These, in fact, are the things which charm them. When I read this, I'm thinking, he could have been speaking today in 2020 America, and this was written in 19th century England. This has been a problem. It was a problem in, the, in, in, in Christ's day. It was in the, in the apostles' day. False teaching will always creep in. So one of the marks of the true church, and it's first for a reason, is true doctrine is the true gospel proclaimed. That's the first one. Second one is, are the sacraments observed? A true church observes the two sacraments or ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper and sees to it that they are properly administered. And then finally, and, and the, 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 again, we observe the sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. There are distinctions, to be sure. Um, there are those that would claim to be believers that would believe in, in uh, baptismal regeneration. We do not believe that. There is no special power in that water. It is an act of obedience. And naming Christ as your Savior and being, it's a symbolic of being, of dying, being buried, and being raised into newness of life in Christ. It is simply an act, a one-time for the believer, a one-time act of obedience to Christ. And finally, uh, church discipline, and this is a big one. And R.C. Sproul has this to say about church discipline. A church has a responsibility for the spiritual nurture of its members to see that the people grow in their faith and become increasingly sanctified. There's that word we've talked about for the last two weeks. 
Therefore, discipline is required to, te to keep the church from becoming infected with impurities and corruption. If the clergy of a particular church continually deny the deity of Christ, yet the church does not censure or remove them, then that church has ceased to be a legitimate church. Notice here that he says, if the clergy, what is the clergy? Specifically? Huh? Elders and pastors, that's right. So he, he couches this kind of, because the first thing that kind of people bristle at in the church about church discipline is the heavy-handedness of leadership over its people. That's not what's being talked about here. Church discipline goes both ways. I know Pastor Tim has said it. If you've been here long enough, you've heard him say it. Don't believe me. Don't believe Josh. Do not believe Tim. Anybody that comes before you with the Word of God and tells you what this says, which is one of the reasons we um, read the scriptures and have you guys look these verses up and read so you can see for yourself. But you are to examine, you are to know the scriptures as well as we do so you can test to see if what we're telling you is right or wrong. You have the responsibility to the, to the teaching you receive in the church and we have a responsibility to those that, we would, that would hear our teaching to deliver to you the truth of God's Word. And that's, what, that's where he's talking about in church discipline. And that spans a lot of different areas, but this is the example he used. But I thought it was interesting that he used that the church, you're responsible. If you sit under bad teaching and you just give a wink and a nod to it and, and go, well, that's, you know, that's okay. I, I like the people here and I can tolerate the bad teaching. No, you can't. That is, not, um, that is not a category that we should be able to live in. And just as an aside, this is not a mark of a true church, but as a Baptist, as Baptist here in, 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 the, in this Baptist church, what is the mark that kind of distinguishes Baptists? Anybody really quick? Anybody know? What makes us uniquely Baptist? Why are we not Presbyterian? Why are we not Methodist? What is it that makes us unique. Anybody? No one? Take a shot. Huh? Well, you would think in the name. That's, that's not a bad shot. What distinguishes us? And it's, it's related to the baptism, to be sure. What distinguishes us from others? Regenerate church membership. What does that mean? When Paul, um, Peter preached at Pe the sermon at Pentecost, the response when he finished, what must we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized. We believe that baptism, again, like I said before, is an act of obedience, identifying yourself with Christ. He is, he is my Lord, He is my Savior, and I am identifying myself with His death, burial, and resurrection. That is, we're making a profession of faith and being entered into the church. Regenerate church membership. That's the distinction that makes us Baptist. Our purpose, I talked about it earlier. Um, what is our purpose? What is our mission as the church? First and foremost, the gospel. That's right. Gospel proclamation. Where's, where's the Great Commission? Anybody? Where's, where's that found? Twenty-eight. Nice. Yeah, eight, eighteen through twenty. Okay, that's 
when did Jesus give that? What happens after he does that? He ascends into heaven. He's commissioning the church to take the gospel to the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit. We are commissioned by Christ. But before he says that, he says, some authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Some or all. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm, I hadn't decided if I'm going to bring this up next week. We'll see. This is a big deal. Um, again, the Great Commission and what we've been commissioned to do. Josh, I know, has told you as y'all gone through Revelation that, that there are different views eschatologically here in, at present in the church as a whole, but even here, there would be disagreements. And this would be one of them that we would not see eye to eye. We do agree that Jesus will return. He's coming again. He came once. He will return. We do agree on that, and that's really the, the biggest issue. Finally, worship. A church ministers to God through worshiping Him. As creatures created in God's image, we were created to worship Him. To worship is to assign worth and value to God. We gather together to worship. That's another thing we do. That's part of our purpose and mission. Uh, again, reach the lost with the gospel. And when we gather here, and, and a lot of the churches in our day have gotten these two things confused. They have taken evangelism, which is what we do where you go to school, wherever you go, wherever you work, wherever any of us, that's our mission field. But we gather here with fellow believers to worship God. We do, we do not evangelize here necessarily. Now, if God draws or you invite somebody, that's great. We all encourage that. But evangelism and worship for the believer, we, we have to distinguish those and separate those. And then finally, uh, or secondly, discipleship. Discipleship is the process of devoting oneself to a teacher to learn from and become more like them. For the Christian, this refers to the process of learning the teachings of Jesus and following after his example in obedience through the power of the Holy Spirit. Discipleship not only involves the process of becoming a disciple, but of making other disciples through teaching and evangelism. Another thing that we do, one of the things we're doing right here. This is, this is the discipleship thing that we're doing right here. Making learned believers, because this is not the entire body. This is not a true worship service. There's only one time a week that we enter into true worship uh, as the gathered body, and that is Sunday, beginning at 10.45. That's when we do that. That's, that's, that's the unique time. And then um, evangelism. Again, that's the carrying the gospel to the nations. Evangelize, proclaim the gospel. In closing, I want to talk about um, this idea of the gathered body. There's something very unique that happens in, in, in our day, in our time, and it's been this way for, unfortunately, far longer than it needs to be. This is not just somewhere we come and this is just a, a, a different time and what we do is important, but it's not that important. There is a reality to the gathered body 
a spiritual reality that is, only happens one other place and one other time when we gather together. Every other time that we gather for teaching and learning and whatever we do together as a group, there's only one time that there's something unique that happens. And I want to read for, for you from Hebrews 12, okay? Again, remember that I talk about Hebrews and the large portion of what Hebrews is talking about is the heaven reality that Christ accomplished on our behalf of entering the heavenly places. Beginning in verse 18, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion in the holy city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to its, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. R.C. Sproul referenced this. There's, there's a lot being communicated here. But when we gather as the body of Christ, R.C. Sproul spoke to a very small church, probably smaller than ours, and he stood and he said to him before he got started, he said, just want you to know I'm very nervous today. When I speak before millions and billions I always get nervous. And they kind of chuckled and laughed like this is a joke because it was a small gathering, probably less than 100 people. And then he read from this passage, when the church gathers together, we come before the throne, and as such, Moses is there, Paul is there, Charles Spurgeon is there, all the saints that have gone before us is present in our worship. Yes, and indeed Christ is present. When we gather together as the body of Christ, that is a reality. Can we see it? No, but the scriptures tells us. He was contrasting Moses going on top of Mount Sinai to meet God. But he said, you have come to... You have come to, uh, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's who we go before when we gather together to worship. So let that kind of think about that for a minute because it's contrary to what most of us have grown up with. 
We come to church because it's something we should do. But Sproul said, if you knew Jesus was going to be at church Sunday, was there something that you might put off to make it? Appointment you might cancel, something you might put off to make sure you were there. Because we uniquely come before the throne. And who is Jesus before the throne? He's our high priest. He's seated at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. That's what happens when we gather. That's why we stress so much here. This mindset must be changed of what we do when we gather. We don't want to become sober, uh, uh, but it should be something that we look forward to, we get excited for, that we are all struck for. Because the nation of Israel, they had to go through all kinds of things to come before God. We do it every Sunday that we gather together. So, keep that in mind when we gather. If there's something that you... Um, it, it might change if we let practice, if we let different things keep us from church. When you realize the reality of what we do when we gather together, I hope it changes your mind. I know it does me. I, I don't miss. Um, because I believe that that's, what, that's the reality of what's happening when we gather. All right, let me pray, and we'll go. Father, I do thank you for this opportunity to teach the students this evening. Father, I pray that, um, that I have communicated your truth clearly and well, and anything that I might have uh, be lacking in me, Father, I pray that you bridge that gap because you are able. I am a weak vessel, and I just thank you that you've given me the opportunity. I pray that you would... Uh, be with these students. I thank you for those that have named the name of Christ as their Lord and their Savior. And I pray that if there are any among us that have not, Father, that tonight would be the night of their salvation. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.